0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We continue our series on China, and tonight we turn to the Chinese economy. China's growing economic influence is increasingly visible in Africa, where much of the world's natural resources exist, and many think the continent is the future of the globe. As factories in the United States shuttered to reduce the costs of manufacturing, factories sprung up all over China. As of 2022, this country of a billion people appeared to have full economic parity with the world's largest economy, that is us, the United States. As the United States became more of a debtor nation, China acquired much of that debt. Now, my guest tonight is a leading expert on the Chinese economy, David Dollar. He served as the U.S. Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China, and it was based in Beijing between 2009 and 2013. And he worked for 20 years at the World Bank, serving as the country director for China and Mongolia. He's now at the Brookings Institute and hosts the podcast Dollar, like his surname, and Sense, not like the money, but like Common Sense. David, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, it's really a great pleasure to talk to you.
1: All right, educate us, please, because you are one of the few people in the world who knows this much about the Chinese economy. What are the main drivers of China's economy?
0: So China started its economic reform in 1978, and it was an extremely poor country. And there are a lot of factors that go into its success, and I'm just going to pick out three. So first, China started its reform with about 80 percent of its population living in the countryside. so it was largely a country of poor farmers. But the government had done a good job educating people with basic education. So you had a very large, literate population. Secondly, as I said, they start out in the countryside, and China has controlled the migration of people, but it has still allowed considerable migration. So now about 300 million migrants have moved from the countryside to the city. So that's That's a big factor in their growth is leave subsistence agriculture, move to the cities, work in a factory or on construction. And then the third factor is, you know, how do you get those factories? Well, initially, it was through opening up the economy to foreign investment and foreign trade. So foreign investors, not so much from the U.S. and advanced economies, but from places like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, they open factories in Chinese cities, They attracted the migrant workers who were literate and could adapt to factory work pretty quickly. And they were working at very low wages because there was an endless supply of them, basically. So those are the three factors I would single out that really got things started. Good basic education, rural urban migration, and foreign investment in trade.
1: If you look, depending upon what you're looking at, there are resources that suggest that China has risen to a point of economic parity with the United States. But that's not entirely true, is it?
0: I don't think they've really quite reached parity with the US. You know, Our main measure of the overall economy, gross domestic product, if you take their GDP last year and convert it to US dollars with the exchange rate, you get $18 trillion, which is very big and bigger than everybody else in the world, except the United States, where our GDP was $25 trillion last year. So we're still about 40% ahead. And of course, they have four times as many people, so on a per capita basis, we're about six times as ahead. Now, you will hear some people refer to China as the biggest economy in purchasing power parity terms, and that's a correction economists make to try to compare the living standards, the average living standards, because a country like China, you've got low prices for a lot of services, and if you correct for that, you get a jump up in GDP, and on that basis, they are probably slightly bigger than the U.S. at this point. But I emphasize that's an artificial construct. Business doesn't take place based on purchasing power parity. It takes place based on exchange rates. And the U.S. economy is still quite a bit bigger than the Chinese economy.
1: Okay, so it's it's very popular right now to bash on China. And we're entering, very shortly, we'll be into another election season. And I'm sure you've been noticing sort of the reaction to TikTok And then there's the issue of China appearing to court Russia right now, which is really appalling, I think, to most people in the United States. But they're not dismissed so easily out of hand because the economies of the United States and China are, and and there's a legal term here, sort of inextricably intertwined. And can you explain what that actually looks like?
0: First, I want to say, Elisa, that I agree with you that China's friendship with Russia is appalling. So I just want to be clear about that. But as you say, the two economies, our economy and China, they are very intertwined. In fact, our economies are quite complementary. You know, the United States is the technology leader in the world. We have a lot of skilled workers. We actually have quite a bit of natural resources as well. China, on the other hand, has that vast population good education, which now goes beyond basic education. They're turning out 10 million college graduates per year. You know, So they've got what we call, economists call, good human capital. They've built up good infrastructure. And they've got these factories that were initially opened by foreign investors. But now there's a large, vibrant Chinese private sector as well. So China is very good at making stuff, particularly manufactured products. We're all used to buying these things probably the laptop computers we're talking to each other on, my uh, high-quality microphone, laptop, the uh, tablet I use to keep notes, all of these things are basically assembled in China. But oftentimes, it's U.S. or other multinational firms that are managing that production process. So we bring the technology and the skilled labor and natural resources too because we export a lot of food to China and we're starting to export liquefied natural gas And China sends manufactured products to us in return. So it's very complementary. It's one of the biggest trading relationships in the world.
1: But let's also talk about U.S. debt. I mean, I think the other thing that China has done is they've invested here in the government. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: They've invested quite a bit in the United States economy. But but frankly, they've invested a lot more in the developing world. The main economies in the world have quite a bit of cross-investment. We have quite a bit of investment in China, for example, and lots of other countries around the world. The United States is a net debtor, but we're also the largest creditor in the world, meaning we're the biggest investor in the world as a whole, but then we also have lots of investment coming into the United States more than what goes out, and that's why we're a net debtor, but we're still a big investor. China, not as big as us on a gross basis, and more focused on developing countries, interestingly enough, but big enough that they have significant investment in Europe and the United States. And and one issue we've had, you know, I used to work for U.S. Treasury, as you mentioned, and had some involvement in our CFIUS process. That's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And China has come in and tried to buy some high-tech firms in the United States. And we have a process uh, chaired by Treasury, but involving you know, all our intelligence community, Department of Defense, et cetera. And and they've stopped a lot of those transactions. So I'm a big supporter of the CIFIUS process as a way of protecting our national security interests, and, and not just against China. We stop quite a few transactions that we think are not in our national security interest.
1: Right. We wouldn't let, for example, a Chinese company come in and buy. Lockheed Martin or (laughs) that's not going to happen. Absolutely not. Right. (laughs) Okay. But let's talk a little bit about this because I think the concern is everybody's been watching, you know, what happened to Jack Ma where he disappeared and now he's back, he's quiet and the company is breaking Alibaba. He's the founder and CEO of Alibaba. It's, It's now breaking into seven pieces. The communist party has asserted it's right to take a certain share So talk to us a little bit about how the Chinese Communist Party fits into the Chinese economy and what powers they wield over companies that operate in China, U.S. and Chinese companies, as well as sort of what hold they have over the financial decisions of all of these companies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is where we get very alarmed.
0: Right. So China is an authoritarian country, you know, run by the Communist Party of China It's quite opaque in its decisions about promotions and elevating people. Nobody's been very good about predicting who's going to rise up in the Chinese Communist Party, as far as I can see. When they started economic reform, the party took a somewhat hands-off approach to the economy. This was when Deng Xiaoping was the number one guy, and he had a very deliberate strategy of leaving a lot of scope to local governments to develop policies to promote the economy. And this is when they legalized private firms and started welcoming foreign investment. So I think there was a golden age of hands-off, in a way, from the Communist Party. Of course, they were paying attention to what was going on. And they've never allowed our social media firms to operate in China, for example. So that, you know, they've always had their fingers in the economy to some extent. But more recently, they've gotten much more involved you know they've put communist party officials on the boards of some of especially big private companies in sensitive areas like social media they control the financial sector the banking system is dominated by four big state owned banks and the communist party appoints the heads of those so that's not really a, a very competitive marketized section of the economy it's really more under the Communist Party thumb. So you have a complicated mixed economy. In my view, the success has mostly come from the dynamic private sector, the foreign investors, the spaces of the economy that they've left open. And on the other hand, I think many of the bad things that happen really come from the Communist Party sticking its fingers into a lot of different economic activities.
1: I do wonder about the debacle that was ever grand though, and how that might affect the CCP's view of of sort of letting these companies run their own show. When you have a CEO who's throwing, you know, a billion dollar party slash Bacchanal, and then the entire thing crashes and, you know, all these middle class Chinese people are out of money. I wonder if that kind of thing doesn't freak them out and make well, them think they should do more.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, you know, because that's a good example of part of the economy that's been the Wild West, basically. You know, those are private real estate developers. There's a huge sector. It got to a point where it was about 25% of GDP, which I think no economist would think is, is healthy. You know, they, they really overbuilt the housing stock. People were buying apartments as speculative investments. A little bit similar to what led to our financial crisis in 2008, 2009, but actually on a bigger scale. So that's a good example where they had a pretty unregulated sector and I would say it was too lightly regulated and then they came in with a very heavy-handed regulatory crackdown changing the rules of finance for those companies they did frankly they needed to bring real estate under control so I just think they did it in a way that lacked transparency and didn't necessarily rely on the rule of law but yeah you know, they're good at certain things like there were a lot of chinese people the system there is people often pay for apartments that haven't been constructed yet. That's the financing mechanism for the developer. So when Evergrande essentially went bankrupt, that left, I, th- I think there were millions of people who paid for apartments, maybe not just from Evergrande, but for the industry. They'd paid for apartments that never got constructed. So local governments stepped in and basically ensured that the developers completed those projects. And- turn the apartments over to people. There were some demonstrations when it was unclear what was going to happen, but then local governments, you know, they got the word from on top that they had to make sure that people who'd paid for apartments got them. And so that problem has largely gone away. They still have the hangover from having built too much real estate. And then some of those developers have basically gone bankrupt, Uh, but that's a normal part of a market economy.
1: It's just there, you're saying it was interesting you characterized it or likened it to the subprime crisis that we had in this country, which, you know, obviously metastasized and, and caused all sorts of problems globally. And we weren't looking too peachy back when that occurred. But let's talk for a minute about what we're seeing right now. China bashing does appear to be very popular. I mean, there are some things that China has done that have probably not been helpful, obviously, this this position on Ukraine and the like. China's burgeoning economy, it's not said directly, but I think the message from a lot of politicians is that it threatens the global leadership role of the United States. The issue about the moral authority of the United States and its ability to get things done globally may be more complex. What what are your thoughts about whether or not China's burgeoning economy will also lead it to displace the United States role as sort of the, the global arbiter?
0: I think that's very unlikely that China would displace the United States as the leading country in some sense for a number of reasons. So their economy's grown very well. We've discussed that a little. I don't think they've reached our size yet. And as I said, they have a lot more people. So per capita, they're way behind. But they have a lot of headwinds they're facing now. Because of their one-child policy in the past, their labor force has peaked and is starting to decline. And there's nothing they can do to change that at this point. So they will be a declining labor force. It's very hard to keep growth up once that happens. They've got the mess in the real estate sector. And related to that is local governments have overinvested in infrastructure, built up too much debt. So they internally have a huge debt problem. And now they have this tension or conflict with the United States, which is affecting their external environment. So there are a lot of reasons why their economy has already slowed down and is likely to keep slowing down. There are quite a few economists who think that China's trending down toward growing at about 2%, which is the US trend growth rate. So it's not clear China's going to overtake the United States. I'm of the view that 2% is probably too pessimistic from China's point of view, because they still have a lot of positives now offset by a lot of negatives. Nobody can predict the outcome, but it's plausible that they could grow at about 4%. And that means they would gradually catch up with the U.S., uh, but they'll never be much bigger than the U.S. economy during this century under that scenario. They've got that aging population, a lot of problems they have to face. So I think that the United States maintaining its leadership position depends primarily on us getting our house in order on a whole range of things. And I remain optimistic about the United States. So I think if you really think that democracy is a superior governance system to authoritarianism, which I do, uh, then I think you have to be optimistic about prospects for the United States. Even if there's a dark period for a while, if we have some presidents that do not work out so well without naming names, you know, democracies have an ability to rebound. And authoritarian governments, in my view, you know, sometimes they get on a right track, like China under Deng Xiaoping, and they grow very well And not just grow, they dealt with a lot of things like poverty reduction and environmental protection for 20 years or so. But then they get a different leader. It's got some strange ideas, and they can go backwards relatively quickly. So I'm a big believer in democracy with all of its flaws as a governance system. And I guess I'm skeptical that an authoritarian China is really going to become a global leader.
1: Okay, fair enough. We could take a moment here to talk about some of the things that America has done, the United States has done that may have already put us on less terra firma in terms of our global reputation, things that seemed perfectly reasonable to us here, but may have been received differently in the world, like the Iraq conflict. Obviously, having the former president arrested isn't particularly attractive. If you watch BBC this morning, I think they were even sounding an alarm that, you know, would this ultimately be a problem for our participation in NATO and other sort of, you know, alarmist speech. So I, I take your point about China, but let's let's go on. You've been in CFIUS and you've worked in this space. We like to talk a lot about the national security legal tools on this podcast because we obviously are beating the drum for the rule of law, but we also think that sometimes these things are the best way and they avoid conflict. There are other ways to sort of Bring people to the table. You know, I've re- listened to one of your recent podcasts with an author who's written a book on sanctions. And I noticed that listening to the two of you, I-, I wonder whether you think sanctions have ever been successfully employed and if they've ever been successfully employed against China to affect any meaningful results.
0: Right. So we can mean different things by this word sanctions. So if we're thinking about the financial sanctions, I would argue that the sanctions we put on Iran were pretty effective. You know, we were able to convince China. I mean, so those sanctions were not directed against China, but we made it very clear to China that if they violated the sanctions we'd put on Iran, that was going to easily lead to penalizing Chinese firms and banks. I think we sanctioned one small Chinese bank, kind of more symbolic than anything, but just to show that we were serious because they were dealing with Iran. And if you remember, we got the UN agreement. We got a negotiated agreement with Iran to put its nuclear program on hold. And I was a supporter of that agreement. And of course, later it all fell apart. But I do think the sanctions worked in that case. It's early days, but I'm confident, not, not confident, I'm hopeful that the sanctions against Russia will have a significant impact. Russia seems to be withstanding the sanctions pretty well economically in the short run and China is helping with that. But China's being pretty careful not to violate sanctions. I think the powerful sanctions in the Russia case involve the use of Western technology and that's gonna affect the Russian economy over time. It's not gonna affect the Russian economy immediately The reason I started by saying we can mean different things by sanctions is that, of course, we have all kinds of restrictions on technology trade with China. We've sanctioned, maybe sanction may not be the right word, but we've put-
1: Referring to export controls.
0: Yeah, we've put Huawei in in the penalty box, as we would say in hockey, (laughs) and that's had a really big effect on their business. We're not selling our technology to Huawei, and that's really led to a serious contraction in their business- And I think the way we've used sanctions, I personally think we've overused them, but the fact that they have been effective in a couple of cases I mentioned, I think China is wary. And so while they're providing rhetorical support to Russia and they're doing more trade in things that are not sanctioned, I don't see China violating the Western sanctions against military support to Russia or against certain technology trade with Russia. I think China's being pretty careful not to have its big firms and banks sanctioned by us. And so I think that's a kind of success on our part to get at least some grudging cooperation from China. Now that could break down. I think if China really doesn't want Russia to lose badly in a humiliating way, so there could be scenarios where the Chinese provide more support. And then I think US-China relations will really go into a much deeper spiral down than they already are if that happens. And and I think China's aware, despite the difficult relations, we still have a lot of trade in particular and quite a bit of investment. There are a lot of Chinese students coming back to U.S. universities now that the pandemic's over. I think China does not want to see radical decoupling. And that gives us some leverage over them on things like how they support Russia.
1: Yeah. And I guess President Xi still has stated a goal of pulling how many, you know, millions of people out of poverty there because they still are a very poor country overall, I think, in terms of the rural areas in particular. You do have to wonder, though, when you're looking at what's going on over there, if if they won't get over the top of their skis and make a mistake here and do something foolish that will cost them. But you also have to wonder any, you know, serious China watcher has to ask what they're doing that we don't know about. You know, let's say one thing on the surface, and then maybe intelligence will show that something else is happening. And that that story remains, I think, to be told with respect to the conflict in Ukraine. But let's talk about this idea of sort of constraining China through limiting their economy. What are some of the risks of going too far with that. That's sort of part one of my question. My second part of the question, if you're imagining trying to suppress China's economy, this also is going to have other resonance across the globe. Why don't you sort of educate our listeners on some of the other things that need to be thought about when considering trying to suppress the growth of a country the size of China?
0: Yeah, I think it's really unrealistic And that one is very likely to backfire on us. So I just want to be clear. I support our efforts to control what kind of technology goes to China and particularly things that could affect their military prowess. That's perfectly reasonable from our point of view. And I think pretty successful. But then when you start talking about, you know, let's suppress the Chinese economy, you know, it's a big country with a lot of poor people. I think it's morally hard to defend and it's not really very practical. We're serious about it. We pretty much have to cut off all trade and investment between us and China. It's just hard to see, you know, given how many firms we have that have business in China, it seems to me it would be very hard to say as for just general economic suppression, you know th- these firms can go ahead and operate in China, and those firms can't. I mean, it's one thing if you go in and, to a firm and say, on national security grounds, we prefer that you not take this technology to China. But it's another thing to say to ordinary producers who might be making toothpaste or any number of common products. You know, we, we don't want you to go to China and make their economy stronger. It's just I think it's hard to defend. But then just being more practical, putting aside the morality, it's viewed very negatively around the world. China's the largest trading partner for a large number of countries. And just this little bit of recovery we're seeing in China now as they come out of the COVID pandemic. Already, you know, the Asian Development Bank just raised their forecast for all of developing Asia, and that's tied to poverty reduction in large number of countries in Asia. So China is an engine of economic growth. So when we say, well, we want to slow that down, we're basically telling the majority of the world's population, we want to see you stay poor, uh, because it'd be really difficult in practice to somehow target China but not have negative spillovers for all the other developing countries for whom China is the largest trading partner.
1: But I do think when we enter election time, there'll be a lot of anti-China things said. And I think some of this is not gonna be a good look for us. It needs to be a more sort of thoughtful discourse. Let's talk for a minute about one of the things that you've raised as a possibility, which is for some reason, the Chinese economy starts to go backwards and there's a, a significant downturn. What does that do to the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of how they perceive threat, what they might do to create a distraction? What would be sort of the threat to the Chinese and the United States national security from a suddenly growing poorer China?
0: So it's very hard to answer this kind of question. You know, we can we can speculate. Uh, You know, I like to start with history.
1: We we invite speculation, so go for it.
0: (laughs) I like to start with history. Chinese history, when they faced very serious domestic challenges, the tendency is to turn inward, not to go on outward adventures. So I'm not really worried that they're going to do badly. And as a result, they decide, oh, let's invade Taiwan or let's renew the military conflict with India or some of their other neighbors with whom they've had conflict. I think they face some really serious issues. You know, I mentioned a couple. They also have a really serious water crisis global climate change is having a big effect on the water it's increasingly there's a lot of water in the south of china torrential rains flooding and then the north is turning into a desert it's got half the population 700 million people you know living in areas and many of them are no longer farmers but the cities in the north need water as well uh, and then they've got the energy you know they're very dependent on imported energy so they just have all kinds of weaknesses and challenges which i think is just not that well appreciated in the United States. And that's the main thing the leaders think about. You know, that's what Xi Jinping worries about most of the time. He doesn't worry about Russia, Ukraine, US sanctions. He worries most of the time about the domestic challenges that they face. Maybe they'll come up with some good solutions to mitigate these. But if things go quite poorly, then I think they'll just be concentrating more and more on trying to deal with those Problems. And then you can imagine, I think China is basically a pretty stable social and political entity. But if things go badly for a number of years, you know, Chinese people were expecting to be moving up into the middle class. And if that doesn't pan out, then it's very hard to predict what will happen politically. But the regime might have to resort to more and more repression, domestic repression, in order to deal with that. So I don't think a scenario where China does quite badly. Is particularly positive for anyone, but I don't worry that it would lead to them doing something adventurous on the military front.
1: Fair enough. Let's talk about watching what's happening right now in China. It does look that President Xi is in a phase of consolidating his power, and he seems to be very adept at that. And I don't know if there's anything about his, you know, childhood experiences with his father. Being sent out to live in a cave and and whatever that was all about, re-educated, whatever that involved. I don't know if there's something about him that he's learned how to play a particular game or he's I'm not sure. But one has to wonder whether the CCP, again, could go too far. As somebody who's watched China though, and you see this going on right now, what are your thoughts on where this could lead or where it might stop?
0: Well, there have been a lot of predictions, you know, as Xi Jinping first did 10 years as the number one person, party secretary. And that's been the norm in modern China is 10 years and retire. But he obviously chose not to. He changed some of the rules and regulations so he could stay on. So he's definitely in charge for the next five years. He hasn't really made any effort to identify a successor. Now, a lot of people thought that as he moved into his third term, He seemed to be isolated from other, you know, he's really put his people in charge is what I'm trying to say of a lot of different ministries and provinces and seemed like there was a danger that he wouldn't be getting, you know, honest information and there wouldn't be much debate about policies. But to be honest, over this first year of this third term, things haven't played out that way. There was a lot of debate about the whole COVID situation and then they did a complete about face in terms of the zero tolerance policy. And he seemed to be cracking down on private firms like Alibaba, as we discussed. Uh, and then they reversed that. And th- the stories are that the new premier, who's the number two in their hierarchy, Li Qiang, uh, you know, that he's really pushed to reassure the private sector that they're welcome in China. Now, I think for the private sector, all of this is probably confusing, but at the very least, we're not getting some kind of clear Path from Xi Jinping. We we do seem to be getting some of the old arguing among the top people, and maybe testing different policies. I guess looking ahead, I I really worry about what happens with succession. I think Xi Jinping may have you know set China up for a difficult succession since he hasn't identified a younger person you know who's being groomed, or ideally maybe two or three younger people, and then let some competition occur and see who's good at various things but that doesn't seem to be happening so i guess i would not worry I, I don't think things have changed that dramatically under xi jinping right now compared to say the last 10 years but i worry about what happens when there inevitably has to be some transition to another leader
1: well let's let's play that out for just a minute let me ask you this last question he's not going to live forever Rumor afoot is, you know he's a secret smoker. you know, he appears to be overweight. He's five years from now, ten years from now, where do you see the Chinese economy going? And if you feel like it, China?
0: Well, there's no question the economy's slowing down. I, I hate to use the word inevitable, but I guess this this is one of the things that's pretty inevitable. They were growing at ten. They slowed down to six over the last decade. and there are a lot of reasons why that's likely to keep coming down. And whether that settles at something like four, uh, which would be the historical experience of economies like Taiwan and South Korea, at four, they're still converging on the US and people's incomes are going up pretty rapidly. If they slow down to two or less, then they're not converging on the US anymore. It may not seem like a big difference, but I think in terms of how, you know whether China is perceived as successful, whether people's lives are getting better will depend a lot. Or can they tackle some of those challenges I mentioned on the economic side and, and get a decent 4% or so growth? I made it very clear. I'm I'm not a big fan of authoritarian governance systems. I think they may work well for a while, but then it's not surprising when when things go bad. And it's very hard to predict if China might have some kind of democratic transition. I don't think I know anyone, any scholar who's particularly optimistic about that. So that's making it makes the projection so difficult. You know, you could imagine a successful, politically liberalizing China 10 years from now that would be, be much easier for the United States to have a friendly relationship with a country like that. I could imagine a, an increasingly repressive state where growth slows down below the U.S. level, and that could be a problem in the world, but, but we don't have to worry about them becoming the biggest economy in the world under that scenario. And I guess I think it's really unlikely that they would be a difficult authoritarian competitor with the U.S. and growing very successfully and you know enormously overtaking us in size. That seems to be the fear of many people in our intelligence community. Uh, I don't think that scenario is very likely.
1: Although, would the power move be for them to do some sort of democratic transition and then grow their economy? That might be a real threat, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, yeah, sure. In some <laughs> ways, but the thing is, econ-
1: economics really is
0: win-win. You know, so for our yeah. democratic for our democratic partners, you know, we used to worry about Japan, but frankly, you know, things have worked out quite well for Japanese people, American people, uh, Europe, and the United States are big economies whose companies compete with each other, but we have a very good friendly relation. And, you know, a lot of it is based on on rule of law and international norms and the kind of things that your podcast focuses on, I think.
1: All right. Well, with that, I just want to say thank you for joining us tonight. Our guest tonight has been David Dollar of the Brookings Institute. He is the host of the Dollar and Cents podcast. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning into NSLT tonight. Share this episode with a friend or a colleague and discuss the issues we've presented with each other in a thoughtful way, exchange ideas. And if you have feedback for us, please reach out. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you can email us at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Alisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Our editor and my co-producer is Francis Berkham. Our program manager is Rebecca Salito and my co-producer is Holly McMahon, as well as the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Come back and see us next time.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing
1: ABA policy.